Hungry Trilobite podcast would like to start by acknowledging these fine conventions. SoonerCon. SoonerCon is Central Oklahoma's longest-running pop culture convention. It is held in Norman, Oklahoma, and the next event is scheduled for June 24th through 26th, 2022. You can go to SoonerCon.com to sign up and get early bird pricing on admission. The Hellmouth Convention. The Hellmouth Convention is a celebration of fandoms such as Buffy, Firefly, and Dr. Horrible. It is scheduled for June 3rd through 5th, 2022 in Los Angeles, California. All proceeds raised will benefit various charities. Please go to thehellmouth.org for more information. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. Today I'm welcoming back Dr. Muhammad Noor, whom you might remember from episode 79. We're going to have some more conversations, and we're going to make some references to the Star Trek cruise where we last spoke. If you're interested, drop me a line and I'll let you know all about the Star Trek cruise. It's one of my favorite conventions. Let's get started. Back today, we have Dr. Mahaba Noor. How are you this evening? I'm great. Thank you for having me back. I always like being on the Hungry Trilobite. <laughs> well, you know, I was really excited to see you again on the Star Trek cruise last month. Yeah. It was an amazing experience. And you talked about so many things that I wish I could have bent your ear and, and just gotten in on. Uh, how, did you have a good time? I had a great time. I'm sorry we didn't get to do a recording there, too. I mean, it was just, well, it was, it was definitely, especially the last day. The last day was crazy. <laughs> you were very busy. Yeah. I mean, your schedule was, was packed. So, yeah, it was fun. It was super fun. I had a, I had a blast. <laughs> but How a lot you? of the, oh, I had a, an, an absolute blast. I was on Star Trek Cruise three and then five, missed the one okay. in the middle. I did but four. Yeah, but I did it's gotten three. better and better. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Totally agree. So, Anybody who wants to go, strongly recommend it. Give me a shout. Call me. Yeah. Two thumbs up. (laughs) You got into a lot of really neat lectures on there discussing things that I personally think are the most fun topics when it comes to science fiction, especially Trek. People talk about the warp engine and they talk about transporting and those are great topics. Yeah. But I just, maybe I'm simple, but I like to just think, is it possible there's life on other worlds? Oh, yeah. Well, as a biologist, obviously, those appeal to me more than the transporters and warp drive and things like that, too. <laughs> Even though those are super interesting. But yes. like, I, I love the biology aspect. I love, like, what would we see if we went to another world? And this is, this is the, the timing is, it was unfortunate in terms of the cruise, because initially, it looked like the cruise was going to happen after Star Trek Discovery finished its fourth season. But, you know, things got rearranged a little bit in terms of the Discovery releases. So that uh, those aliens, which came out the very, very end of, of season four of Discovery, weren't shown by the time we were on the cruise. So we couldn't talk about those. It's like, oh, man, it was so close. <laughs> ah, that is unfortunate. And yeah. I was just sitting there wondering when, you know, you go to your your day to day and you yeah. literally write, you know, uh, professional works on what life is like on this planet. How useful is it to just sit and ponder these things? Is there an academic benefit to just sitting and spinning your wheels on it? On on which part? On the on any of it? Just just sitting there thinking, you know, how what would life be like? Is there life out of the world? Oh, in terms of thinking, in terms of astrobiology, yeah, yes. absolutely. Now that's so that's I, I, like you said. I my research is completely on speciation and related evolutionary processes on Earth. There are people who actually do focus specifically on astrobiology or exobiology, and specifically focusing on you know first principles of what might we see on, what might we see on other worlds. 
And yeah, that has, that has huge benefits because I mean, we haven't seen it yet and we don't actually know. And, you know, what would be one of the terms that they often use, and this is not my subfield, but in that subfield, one of the things, that, one of the terms they use is agnostic biosignatures. Like essentially, like if we were to find some sort of truly alien life and it's not like our life, like we, because we always are like, well, we're looking for things that are water-based, carbon-based, you know, all those things, but like, it doesn't have to be. So what would a, a biosignature be that is not reliant upon what we know about our world, but trying to come up with it almost from first principles. And that's that's a fascinating area. I wish it was my area, but it's not my area. Sure. <laughs> well, I, I mean, love my I, area too. Yeah, nothing gets my area. <laughs> yeah, I'm just sitting here thinking, because you know, from my complete layperson's perspective here, you know, the next step is you know, I, we hear about silicon-based life as a yeah. one-off from carbon-based life. And yeah. that's as far as my imagination can take me. If there's something yeah. beyond even that, I don't know. But yeah. is there even DNA if you get to that point? Or does is that carbon Probably not. Based? I mean, DNA is still carbon-based. Yeah, it has a carbon, it has a backbone of the, all these carbon compounds. So yeah, probably not. <laughs> and, there are, and there's challenges with silicon-based life. You know, people talk about like, oh, it's just, it's just one down on the periodic table. Like, yeah, but if you have a water sort of environment, like silicon would prefer to bind with oxygen over other silicons. I mean, the advantage of carbon is not just that it binds to four other atoms, that's huge, but it also like, it can make these long and complex chains and things like that. Silicon is not quite as good in that regard, especially in the presence of oxygen or water or things like that, so. And, and to say it's only one, you know, one slot down on the periodic table, it's like, well, at the same time, there's only one molecule of difference between water and hydrogen peroxide. And that's a big difference. <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I mean, oh, go ahead. No, no. I was just, just thinking idly here. Is if we don't have DNA, where do we store the, the building blocks and silicon stores literal memory that we use here on earth? In, in computer form. It's true. That's true. That's true. That's true. No, of course, that was much more like designed as opposed to something that was a byproduct of just natural processes. But yeah. Sure. <laughs> and that, that that's that's a philosophy way beyond what I'm that thinking. Is, here. That does open up a whole can of worms. <laughs> yeah, no. Don't don't want to go that route. Just no, just thinking <laughs> what what is possible, what, regardless yeah. of how it comes about. It's hard to know because I mean to some extent what you want is some sort of heredity. I mean, that's what the DNA is giving you. It's giving some sort of heredity. Then it's giving the opportunity for things like natural selection to work. That basically something about me is passed on to the next generation after me, right? So that, yeah, I mean, could something else do that? I mean, to some extent, if you go back, I mean, I guess one way of looking at it is the other direction, going back in time. Before the 1940s, we didn't know the DNA was the hereditary material of life. You know, people thought maybe it was proteins, maybe it's these other things. So, I mean, at least at that point in time from first principles, people thought that maybe these other things could do it. Now, proteins, of course, are still carbon-based. That doesn't change that aspect to it. <laughs> but it does open the question of what, you know, what else could have that sort of information content. RNA is an easy one because to some extent, you know, RNA has the ability to, you know, make other copies of RNA, but also can, you know, essentially help identify, you know, building blocks that can be built from it. So like our RNA is translated into proteins. So RNA is a good candidate for that. And we have obviously on Earth, we have RNA viruses. And it's thought that maybe on Earth in, the, in ancient history, RNA was the original hereditary material. It eventually replaced mostly with DNA. But yeah, we don't know. <laughs> so, I mean, when it comes to viruses, do we consider them life in the same sense that, you know, animals and plants would question. be? Yeah. It's a wonderful question. Yeah, I mean, the comment I always say is like, whenever you go to your doctor, they say they want to kill your viruses. So that implies they're alive. <laughs> That's the comment I say. Of course, you're working on doctors there rather than evolutionary biologists. 
different people say different things. I mean, certainly like on the way to life. I mean, the people who argue against it, I, I'm in the four. I'll tell you that. And the people who argue against it say, oh, but they can't reproduce on their own. I'm like, I can't reproduce on my own. <laughs> right? I mean, I need something. No, that's not a fair comparison because you can have something just that's like me that would help me reproduce. Mm -hmm. But a virus, like, you know, if you give it another virus, it still can't reproduce. So <laughs> I, I still think that there's plenty of things that just have special needs. I don't think that makes it not alive. So, And I mean, when it comes to it doesn't metabolize per se yeah, yeah. but it's still it definitely experiences natural selection you know, like mm -hmm. as we've as we've unfortunately yes. been experiencing lately with all these variants <laughs> yeah and that's that's just because somebody once said to me that you know biology is the only topic that can't define specifically what it studies it, it just goes <laughs> by process of elimination what's left yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it, there's the, the, if you go to any textbook of biology, they'll usually have these seven categories of life, but you can always find exceptions to it. Mm -hmm. You know, you can always say, like, for example, one of the, one of the criteria for life is that it can reproduce. So does that mean a mule is not alive? <laughs> you know, like, clearly, like, it does. I mean, we consider it alive. And there's a whole bunch, like, for almost any one of those, you could probably find at least a gray area, if not an exception in, in one or the other direction. And that's when you circle back to where we, we got off on the topic is like, yeah. if you ever start to look for what would be completely outside of our sphere, yeah. how would we even recognize it? Yeah. How many arguments would we have just seeing, should we even include it in the conversation? Yeah, yeah. I love, I love one. I know some astrobiologists find this controversial. There's some people who've done these sort of statistical approaches looking at it in the context of complexity, like that there's some kind of sweet spot in the middle where some things are absolutely simple. Like just imagine like some just repetitive thing of like a compound or something like that. They're like, okay, that's clearly not a lot. And other things are like in incredibly complex where there's no rhyme or reason or pattern. They're like, okay, that's clearly too complex, but they suggest there's some sweet spot in the middle where there are some patterns and there's some complexity, but it's not ridiculously complex where there's, you know, decipherable patterns. That's kind of the sweet spot where you might be able to not necessarily know that that life was involved but at least that would be a good candidate for looking for life and i like that sort of idea because it's it's truly agnostic but i think it's still a, a bit of a controversial idea even amongst that, some astrobiologists sure sure yeah and, and again i just kind of wonder because it, it would be so great if we had the ability to actually look at something and say okay this is what we compare it to but we we yeah. don't yeah. and i'm a fan of thought experiments that's my yeah. weakness of mine yeah yeah and I like that. I like that example I just gave you too. Because it, it, it's it's truly a first principles idea. It's not something where you're, you're not comparing it to like an amino acid or something like that. You're not comparing it to something we know on Earth. I like when you're to go back to Trek for just a second sure, there, please. and your your lectures. Um, mm -hmm. I, I was interested discussing evolutionary biology. Mm -hmm. That I always want to say. Do you have a point at which you can look at a a, a fictional creature and say? this is the reason that biology guided them that way, where that, that this, these were the traits that were beneficial. These were the traits that were then yeah. that had to be yeah. dropped from the chain. Is, is that a thought process that comes naturally easily? Oh yeah, through? absolutely. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's yes and no. So, I mean, okay. on the, on the one hand, yes, like this happens all the time. People identify like, oh, a giraffe has a long neck and it's useful for like reaching trees or something like that. As the trees get taller, their necks got long. Yeah. It's, that's, on the one hand, that's one thing that's done a lot. On the other hand, this is something that, you know, there was a very eloquent um, paper back in like the late 70s about this particular topic, about this sort of evolutionary storytelling. We have to be very careful because some things can look like they have a particular purpose and, and we're just wrong. And um, I forget, the, the, they, they used a reference of the spandrels of San Marcos. It was some artistic thing with, with like 
fancy arches or something like that look like oh this must be holding up the 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 top very well like nope they're purely decorative <laughs> so evolutionary biologists have to be very careful and you basically have to like develop very very good hypotheses and then test from them and then do it serially uh, and you know to some extent like is it is it ever 100 percent where you know this is the natural selection that made this happen i mean Certainly in some cases, yes. Like if you apply pesticide and then a pesticide resistance gene spreads, like, okay, that's very straightforward. It's, I mean, I guess in theory, you could say maybe it would have spread anyway, but like, come on. <laughs> so you can have very, very high confidence sometimes, but it's very important to just watch for adaptive storytelling as they call it and be very careful about that and have rigorous hypotheses or rigorous alternative hypotheses that could essentially refute your theory. Um, does genome research aid with this at all? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and i say that not saying i i don't know to what extent because that's something I've, I've always found fascinating just being able to say this came from this this oh, yeah. uh, strain and oh yeah i mean you know anything involving dna is wonderful because you know the the, the number of tests you can do i'll give you one actually just one set of examples there's a million ways that dna studies can help and it doesn't necessarily have to be whole genome the whole genome is always very good too um, there's a lot of statistical approaches you can do. Let's say, for example, that you knew a particular gene was involved with, say, insecticide resistance or something like that, and you knew that it had spread recently. There are specific uh, signals that you can see in the DNA. When I say signals, I don't mean something like in the DNA per se, but like statistically, like the distribution of variation in a particular stretch of a gene can be used to interpret what were the evolutionary forces that helped drive changes at that gene. And that's something that's been used a lot for the past like 30, 40 years in evolutionary biology, a ton. <laughs> so there's a whole field called like basically molecular evolution that really, I mean, it was kind of around before the late 80s, but it really, after, after that, it became like, you know, a mainstay in evolutionary biology. So yeah, DNA-based studies and genome-based studies even more so just provide like tons of ways of getting at questions that were never available before. Now, that's sure. not to say that, that people hadn't done a lot of exciting research before that. And, you know, people had interpreted a lot of things quite well. It, in many cases, very strongly reinforced what people had already inferred. In other cases, it gave new insights that we didn't have before. I remember when I was, it was 1995, yeah. I was in middle school mm -hmm. and our, we were learning about the Human Genome Project. Yeah, It was hot news at the time. Oh, yeah. And we kept being told this was this big project that was going to take so long. Yeah. And then like a couple of years later, it was like, yeah, we're done. Wrapped yeah, it up. Craig Venter, he changed the whole thing. <laughs> I don't know if you remember his name. I don't. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he he came up with, well, I don't know if he came up with it, but he was part of the, one of the people who popularized this idea of shotgun sequencing. So what it was happening before is they were going through and they were sequencing a stretch of DNA and they were trying to find, okay, where's the next stretch? And then let's do that a little bit. And it was just this like plodding along in the genome. So that's why it was going ridiculously slow. Craig Venter said, you know what? We should just like dice up the genome you know, into the little pieces, you know, which is fairly easy to do with enzymes or, or, or through mechanical means. And then just sequence lots of it without any regard to what we're sequencing and then computationally assemble it all. That completely changed how everything was working. And that revolutionized how the Human Genome Project ran. All the, all the sequencing that's done today uses at least that principle. Maybe not the approach is not exactly the same, but uses that principle. It's a short shotgun approach. We're just going to dice up the genome, sequence everything, and put it together in the computer, <laughs> as opposed to plodding around like from base one to base 500, and then base 501 to base 510, et cetera. <laughs> I'm going to have to make extensive show notes for this episode, but it's so going to be worth it. <laughs> I'm going to put a ton of stuff in there. When you were talking on stage and we were talking about how beneficial it is to use pop culture as a way mm -hmm. to springboard some of your discussions, 
one of the examples used was the Avengers. And I had to think, gee, what, what, how many conversations have you gotten out of the Avengers? <laughs> Me personally, not a ton. <laughs> okay. I mean, uh, the difference between Star Trek and something like Marvel or fantasy in general is um, there's not an attempt to be that scientifically accurate. Like they're happy to just be like, we'll, we'll give you the super soldier serum. Don't worry about what it is. You know, it's something. <laughs> mm -hmm. Star Trek doesn't do that as much. And when it does, it acknowledges what it's doing, right? You know, it'll acknowledge like we're using, we're using a, a save here, like the, the, what is it called? The Heisenberg compensators or the mm -hmm. inertial dampeners. So they're acknowledging there's a problem, but they're just kind of using it. Like we know there's a problem. We're just going to jump over that. <laughs> yeah, Marvel in particular, I, I don't use a lot, but I know um, my colleague at, at Duke, Professor Eric Spanner, he has used quite a few Marvel things. In fact, he has a whole talk about Captain America Super Serum. So I mean, he uses to try to present things. I find that a little bit harder. He's smarter than I am, I guess. <laughs> sure, sure. I, I, one of my favorite, I, topics and, and, and things I like to go on and, and with Dr. Ann and I have talked about this once or twice is the need of sometimes the story to supersede the science and the, the, the balance Absolutely. you have in between there. Absolutely. And even with consulting, I've sometimes pointed out like, this is a problem, but like, you know, just let it go. <laughs> and Dr. Ann has a really good principle that she uses often too. She says, if something is too hard to explain, just don't. Just <laughs> it's better. It's better than trying to explain it and doing it badly. It's better just not to just leave it alone. <laughs> had a buddy who uh, was writing a time travel story a while back and I'm a sucker for time travel stories. And he really spent like five pages getting into this explanation as to how the trip from one point to another took place. And he's like, I don't think that the science works out. It doesn't make sense. And I said, nobody's going to care. It really, it's, if it's a time travel story, the, yeah. Just like, you know, when somebody travels to that planet, unless it's really important to the story, they don't care why the people are purple. Yeah. Yeah. It, they don't care why they have feathers unless that becomes an issue in the story. Yeah. And yeah. so how often does that come about when you're trying to do a reference that you have to decide, does this really affect the story or not? Well, I, so the, I don't, I'm not in a position where I have to make those uh, decisions. Right. I sure. mean, I'm just, I'm just a contracted consultant. So basically if right. they're asking me, then they feel like that they want something to be put in there. So I, that's gotcha. not my, yeah, it's not my place to say, no, just don't. <laughs> But there, I mean, it has come up though, just in some discussions where, like, I will suggest something. And I'll say this doesn't fully work, but just <laughs> just let it go, even though it doesn't fully work. Just allow that to continue. But you know, it at least gets you close enough where don't worry about. You know, imagine like a road, like you're driving from from you know Washington D.C. to New York. This gets you all the way to New Jersey. Don't worry about that last leg. <laughs> That's a really good analogy. Thanks. <laughs> Because I, I think that's it's only been somewhat recently that we've really started to wonder how close do we have to get these things, especially you know using Star Trek as a metric. It's yeah. it's fifty years old. It's got a long enough timeline. Yeah, you know, for a while it's like, well, one guy's black on one side and white on the other. Oh my and that's gosh. just yeah. Like <laughs> it, it's, there, there's not really an evolutionary way we can say that makes sense. That I well, actually it's of. interesting. Professor Expand I was just talking about has a spring break class that he just ran like uh, here in March 2022. And they actually tried to come up with a way to do exactly that one. <laughs> they tried to science okay. that out and have some explanation for it. It was a stretch, but, you know, hey, kudos to him. It's on YouTube. I'll see if I can dig up the link and send it to you. Yeah, please. Again, it'll go in the show notes here. I'm, okay. I'm just thinking of like, you know, a, a penguin that is black on its back because it yeah. blends in with the water. And it's that that's the closest yeah. I could come up with. And that's yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, he came up with something and using like some, you know, basically some aspects of embryonic development and where, when things are patterned and stuff. Or he came up with something for it. Or he and his, and his students, it wasn't just him, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there a, a sci-fi series that does biology really, really well in your mind? You know, I liked, I don't, I, I don't know about really, really well, but I did like Orphan Black. Did okay. you see that? I did not. Okay, so this is one that involved like a, a like a lot of cloning. There's a lot of cloning associated with it, and I, I don't. I mean, there were definitely some aspects where like okay, <laughs> but what was what was impressive to me is there was a lot of biology, a lot of genetics in particular, and it was clear they had researched it. Like they were talking about individual gene names. They were they were thinking about how this would work. Clearly, there was a lot of depth in there. I'm, I'm assuming they did some pretty hefty consulting associated with that. That you know, I I, I give them I give them two thumbs up, even if it's not a hundred percent. But to some extent, like you said it can't be a hundred percent otherwise it's gonna be a nature story <laughs> it's gonna be like animal planet or whatever <laughs> and, and i got a yeah. bunch of friends that you know colleagues that people who talked to me on twitter about the, what happened in the latest episode and how it just broke science and i'm like okay but you have to realize yeah. even watching the show it all breaks science the exactly. fact that you, i mean it's you're breaking science from the first frame it's just how much can you break and still enjoy exactly. the story yeah beautifully said beautifully said <laughs> and, and and at this point, we're just looking at, we want to tell a story about people, yeah. us actually, not yeah, yeah. people in the present here. And yeah. this is, just gives us the building blocks to do that. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I love that. <laughs> I mean, I, science is it, a, the part of science fiction that makes the whole thing work because yeah. you know, you're building up, I hate to say what I'm about to say, but it's true. We're building a fantasy world out of real science. Oh, I know. And that's fair, too. I mean, that's the distinction between pure fantasy is that you're not doing it out of science. You're just you're just letting whatever happen. Whereas with science fiction, you are actually trying to, you know, apply most of the time some fairly reasonable scientific principles to everything and, and not making it too fantastical. Yeah, I, I respect that, too. <laughs> yeah, I do, too. I, I, I think that there's a tendency to take the science part to the extent that yeah. it ruins your enjoyment which is yes. counterproductive. Exactly, exactly. If basically, if there's something that really would make the story much better, do it, you know, forget the science, just do it. I mean, because it is a story, it's entertainment. <laughs> like how there many are scientists ep- out there doing science? We don't need, more, we don't need science fiction people to be doing science. <laughs> right. And, you know, there, to be fair, there are science scientists who have decided, hey, I'm going to grab a typewriter and just have a little fun one night and they've come up with some great stories. Isaac Asimov, right? Yeah. Yeah, and many I, others. And at the same time, you know, I, I like Asimov. Mm-hmm. It's not generally my go-to when I just want to have some fun. Yeah, yeah. It's very grounded. <laughs> it's very grounded. <laughs> what do you think is like his best grounded work, the, 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 the grounded in the best way possible? I mean, I haven't read a ton of his work, so I don't know. Okay. The, the few I have, though, are like obviously things like 2001, of course, and stuff. Um, yeah, the problem is he's not a biologist, right? <laughs> There's a reason I'm asking, and I'm just kind of wondering, have you read The Gods Themselves? I have not. Okay. The best thing about this is that when you're, the story starts and it drops you into it, you don't know what's going on. Oh, any, well, I love those cold opens, yeah. The worst thing about it is you don't know what's going on. Oh, and, and, you eventually and, figure it out, or is it left vague? It ta- it, you got to work for it. And, and Wow. I could spoil it if you want me to, because I, I, or if not, just get back to me at some point. Okay. Um, but back. yeah, please. I mean, I, I would hate to ruin it for you, but yeah, yeah. to to understand the world around us, yeah. I'd be interested in your response. 
Gotcha, gotcha. So I guess something that what that reminds me of like is like the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone very regularly would do that sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas there's a cold open and you spend the entire episode trying to figure out what's going on, and then only at the end, like, oh. <laughs> How about the outer limits? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same sort of thing. Yeah, longer format. Yeah. The difference I always found was outer limits almost never had a happy ending. Yeah. Twilight yeah. Zone's average was a little better. Yeah, it's almost like some, some and some, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we've, we've gotten away from shows like that, the anthology shows where we just let people play with different ideas. Yeah. And I mean, even Trek, as much as I love it, when we get into these long story arcs, which are my yeah. jam, yeah, we get the past, like, well, we know who's here, we know what's where. Yeah. And yeah. It's, <laughs> Did you watch in the 80s? Did you watch Amazing Stories? That was one that tended to be a little more positive. I missed that one. Oh yeah, that was that tended to be more, it, was like, it was like Twilight Zone, but a little bit more positive, a little more family friendly and stuff. And actually, you're not the first person to bring that one up on the show, so I'm going to have to look into that because yeah. now I've got a sign to go check it out. It had a great theme song too, <laughs> <laughs> or theme music. It wasn't a song. So, what are you working on now? Because the semester is going to be wrapping up soon. You just got back from the cruise. Yeah. Uh, research-wise, so mm-hmm. research, I mean, what we're studying, and this is a long-term research project. I mean, we've been working sure. on this for over a year, and we'll be working on it for multiple more years still. Um, in in most species, and we're studying this using fruit flies, in most species, uh, lethal-causing gene variants are quite abundant. So probably, like, on average, most people, you know, or fruit flies or whatever, have one or two gene variants that would cause lethality. But since we only have one copy, we're not dead because they tend to be recessive, that the other copy essentially counterbalances it. We're trying to do is we're trying to understand what, why are there so many of them and what are these things, right? So this is the kind of thing, it's funny because this has been known for, whew, at least in fruit flies since the 1930s, <laughs> right? Wow. So it's been known a long, long sure. time. And it was studied a lot in like the 60s and 70s, but they didn't get really far. So this comes back to the question you were asking earlier too. And then what's funny is people just kind of dropped it. People were like, you know what, let's move on to something else. And it was a conversation I had with one of my graduate students about four years ago or so. I was talking about this stuff and I was like, you know what? This is much more doable to figure out now using like whole genome sequencing and stuff like that than it would have been in the 1970s by a ton. So I was like, well, why don't I just write a grant and, and get the money to do it? And the National Science Foundation graciously funded me with, you know, a big grant. So that's that's what we're working on right now. And we've identified some of these lethal causing variants. We've shown that they are specifically like single gene variants. Because one, one concern was that they aren't single genes that are causing lethality, but maybe it's the accumulated effect of a whole bunch of little ones. It's clearly not that. It is clearly single genes. So you know, I'm, that's what we're working on. I'm not the National Science Foundation. I don't know how many papers pass their desk every day. But if you pitch this to me, that sounds like information worth having. That sounds like work worth doing. Right. And the health implications are huge. The conservation implications are huge. It just it 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 you know, crosses so many boundaries. So I'm really excited about it. And I have a wonderful team, fantastic lab manager, fantastic grad student, a team of undergrads all helping out with it. So or actually not helping out, they're like doing almost all of it. <laughs> very much interested in, is there a way we can follow that or is it just kind of wait till the paper gets published no it's a wait till the paper gets published it's gonna be a fair enough <laughs> sure sure no understandable but you got me psyched up and that's you know, the way my brain works yeah yeah well i don't want to take up too much of your time because i do know you're a busy guy but i really appreciate you coming by and i would like to swing back and maybe check to see if you check out that book at some point and i'm going to look up that tv show as well yeah i'll look up the the youtube link and see if i can send it to you too Please do, please do.
Cool. Well, thank you. Okay. Well, everything's going to go in the show notes on my website, aaronbostick.com. Dr. Mm -hmm. North, thanks for so much for coming back. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I would like to thank Dr. North for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. After that kind of a talk about the possibility of extraterrestrial life, I don't want to let the topic go just yet. I'm probably not going to get somebody with the credentials that Dr. Noor has to talk about aliens and extraterrestrial life, but I can go to the Good Pods app and type in alien life, and what do I find but a podcast called You Don't Live in the World You Think You Do, which is a long-running show, appears to release several times a month, going back over 124 episodes, where they're interviewing various people who have had extraterrestrial experiences. And here's where I stand on that. At the very least, if you have that many people with that many stories, it's worth looking into. Personally, I love the idea of extraterrestrial life, but like a lot of people, I think I'd want to see something solid after all the time we spent talking about it. So I definitely am interested in in seeing something real come out of this. And I'd be interested in seeing you guys come back for more episodes. You could subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.